It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. There has long been a pattern in Bangladesh. Dissent leads to disappearances. A new report tries to measure just how often the country's security forces are involved with making opposition voices simply vanish. And the numbers are troubling. And little more than 10% of the people who have been to space have been women, largely because of health regulations imposed by space agencies. We examine how those rules are changing as plans for wider celestial explorations are shaping up. But first... Tomorrow, Ukraine will mark its 30th anniversary of independence from Russia. But what's happening today shows just how fraught that relationship is these days. Ukraine's president has invited representatives from 45 countries, including many European leaders, to the capital, Kiev. His hope is to refocus the world's attention on Russia's annexation of Crimea. The Crimean Peninsula was gifted from the Soviet Union to Ukraine in 1954 by Nikita Khrushchev. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. And then if you fast forward, it became part of the independent Ukrainian state in 1991, Now, in 2014, as Ukraine looked like it was moving closer to the West, Russia invaded, it sponsored rebels in eastern Ukraine, and it essentially grabbed and annexed the entirety of Crimea in what was the first change of borders in Europe by force since World War II. And what is the situation in Crimea now? Well, uh, Moscow is sort of struggling to maintain the welfare of Crimeans. You know, there's two and a half million people there. Fresh water's become a big problem because Ukraine has built a dam across the North Crimean Canal. There's a fall in agricultural output because of the lack of irrigation. And some Crimean Tatars, who are a minority ethnic group, an indigenous ethnic group, uh, who oppose Russia's annexation have also been protesting and they've been subject to a lot of repression. So the situation there isn't great from Russia's perspective, and it's become an enduring flashpoint between the two countries. And so this summit that that brings in international leaders, what what will happen? What, What does it hope to achieve? Well, I think Volodymyr Zelensky, who's Ukraine's president, he hopes that it's going to put Crimea back on the map. If you go back a few months, back in the spring, there was a a major Russian military buildup in Crimea and in eastern Ukraine. And that really caught the global headlines. It prompted calls of support from Europe, North America. Joe Biden had a summit with Vladimir Putin. Since then, a lot of that's been forgotten. So I think essentially what Zelensky wants is to put Crimea back on the agenda of global diplomacy and to sort of reinvigorate the debate over how to counter the Russian occupation. Essentially, he wants the West, his partners in Europe and America, to support more sanctions, more diplomatic pressure on Russia. 
in other words, to force Russia to give back Crimea by whatever means possible. And does the fact that he has managed to convene so many world leaders bode well for, for getting that to happen? It's impressive he's got so much solidarity. You know, now all the star players aren't there. Emmanuel Macron of France, Angela Merkel, uh, Ursula von der Leyen of the EU, Boris Johnson. None of those people are there. But America is sending the Secretary of Energy, which is which is quite a senior and important post. But all of this is also complicated by something called Nord Stream 2, which is a pipeline being built nearly complete from Russia to Germany. And that is a, a really contentious subject. Zelensky met yesterday with Angela Merkel in Kiev, and he has been very, very critical of Germany's role in supporting Nord Stream 2. I believe that it's not a now, what Merkel says is, don't worry about this. We won't allow Russia to weaponize this gas corridor. And last month, she reached a kind of truce with Joe Biden. And Joe Biden's administration had previously said it would not allow this pipeline to go ahead. It would sanction it. In the end, it did allow it to go ahead. But as part of the deal, Biden said, look, we will impose sanctions on Moscow if Nord Stream 2 is used to threaten the energy security of American allies in the region. So Zelensky hopes essentially that this is going to focus minds on what he sees as a real energy weapon uh, to Ukraine and how it might be best mitigated. But what about the rest of the international community beyond America and Germany? A lot of other countries are also very concerned, particularly northern European ones. You know, the Baltic countries, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, who see Russia as a, a serious threat, they are very concerned about Russian pressure on Ukraine. So yesterday, for example, the Estonian president made very clear that she absolutely didn't accept the occupation and annexation of Crimea. I really feel for Ukrainian people who have to see this, what we are today seeing every day and know that their country has been broken. But Russia has, has considered the matter of Crimea long since closed. What's it saying about this summit? You're absolutely right. Russia says, look, the majority of ethnic Russians in Crimea want to be part of Russia. And Russia's probably correct about that. And they say, we're not going to give it back. And in fact, I would even say their position has hardened in recent months, not just over Crimea, but also over Ukraine. Last month, Vladimir Putin wrote a 5,000-word essay, which was called On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians. And to spare you reading all 5,000 words of it, I can sum it up. It basically said, Ukraine, that's not a real country. It's basically part of Russia. You should be grateful to us for letting it exist. Okay, I'm simplifying, but I think what it shows you is that we're seeing an increasingly hard line in Russia towards Ukraine. So will this summit then create even greater tensions? Uh, will it do what Mr. Zelensky wants to, to bring it to the wider attention of the world? Will it, will it do both? It depends on your perspective. I think most Europeans realize Russia is not going to give Crimea back. It's not going to happen. You know, it, it, it's, it's simply unrealistic. On the other hand, you could say that six, seven years ago when this crisis began, no one really thought that there would be the stomach for Western sanctions, particularly European Union sanctions on Russia for so long. The fact that they have held together, despite the fact that you have opposition from a number of countries, particularly some Southern European countries who say, look, let's just do business with Russia. We can't just have sanctions forever. The fact that that unity has held is very impressive. And I think the crisis that we saw 
in April over Russia's military buildup has kind of put the crisis back on the map. And Ukraine's ambition is that it keeps it there, that it can keep that solidarity from its allies, and that it can make sure even if it isn't getting Crimea back anytime soon, Moscow is still going to pay a diplomatic and economic price for clinging on to it. Thanks very much for joining us, Shashank. Thank you, Jason. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A new report attempts to put some numbers to a tragic practice that many Bangladeshis have long known about. For decades, the country's security forces have been forcibly disappearing journalists, businessmen and politicians. But the problem is on the rise. Many of the recent victims seem to be critics of the ruling Awami League government. 86 of those disappeared during the tenure of Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina are still missing. The government has denied the allegations in the face of growing calls for an independent investigation. So over the last 12 years, some 600 Bangladeshis are thought to have been forcibly disappeared. Susanna Savage writes about Bangladesh for The Economist and has had first-hand experience with those same security forces. Their cases are detailed in a report from Human Rights Watch. Many have eventually turned up. Some of them were released and implausibly found, like Shafiqul Kajul, a photojournalist who went missing in March 2020. He turned up blindfolded with his legs and arms bound in a no-man's land between Bangladesh and India, some 150 miles away from Dhaka, where he was last seen. Others have returned, but in body bags, having been killed in mysterious ways and with the security forces who took them taking no responsibility for their deaths. So it's the security forces that's, that's targeting them? I mean, why? It's the security forces who carry out the enforced disappearances. Uh, when I was picked up and questioned, it was by Special Branch, which is an intelligence service. And then I was handed over to another intelligence service, DGFI, where I was questioned extensively. The reason that I was picked up is because of the articles I wrote that were critical of the government in their eyes, particularly of the Prime Minister, Sheikh Hasina, She's the one that directs the security forces. And so um, I was forced during my my time in detention to apologise for these articles. And this is part of a general approach that Sheikh Hasina's government has taken to trying to silence criticism in any form. I was fortunate enough to be released, but many are not. So while the numbers of disappeared seem small, especially in a country of 180 million people, the fear of being disappeared keeps millions of voices in check. And so there's something of a straight line then between Sheikh Hasina coming to power and and the, the increase in these abductions. Well, to be clear, disappearances are not new in Bangladesh. They've happened both under previous Awami League governments and under governments led by the Bangladesh Nationalist Party, which is now in opposition. But 
it's really since Sheikh Hasina took office for a second time in 2009 that they've become a systematic tool of oppression. On the eve of her coming to power in 2009, there were only three reported cases of enforced disappearances. Obviously, that's a lot less than the 600 that have been reported up to today. One thing that's particularly striking about this report is that although... Bangladesh isn't alone in kidnapping its citizens. Other South Asian governments do this. It is notable that other countries that do this, it's nearly always linked to some sort of internal conflict or insurgency. Whereas Bangladesh, there is no real internal conflict. It's just the government targeting its political opponents and critics. And how has the international community responded to to this rise? So the UN Human Rights Council recently wrote to the government of Bangladesh asking the whereabouts of 34 victims of enforced disappearances. And occasionally foreign powers will issue a statement calling for the Rapid Action Battalion, known as RAB, which is an elite police squad there who are behind most of the disappearances, especially those mentioned in the report, to be dismantled. But in general, the international community's response to the human rights abuses in Bangladesh is quite lacklustre. One reason I think this is, is because the country is currently hosting over a million Rohingya refugees who've fled genocide in neighbouring Myanmar. So they're hesitant to sort of criticise Bangladesh too much while they're hosting this enormous number of refugees. I spoke to Manakshi Ganguly from Human Rights Watch and she said, you know, Bangladesh deserves credit for hosting the Rohingya. But this doesn't mean that the government should be absolved from also being held accountable for violations against their own people. And so in that sense, uh, if there's no pressure to remove it, this tactic will, will only grow? Yes, I think so. I think that civil society and opposition parties have been silenced to such an extent in Bangladesh at the moment that there's really no voice without the international community that's going to have an impact and force the government to to change or to stop doing this. And this is why some of the families don't even report their relatives missing in the first place, because they know that they're more likely to be punished for asking questions than they are to get answers about their loved one's whereabouts. I spoke to the sister of one of those who's been disappeared since 2013. Hi, Susanna. Hi, Who also runs a platform for the families of victims. And she said that because of this, we have no real idea how many people have actually been taken. It's likely far higher than the 600 we know about. She said, only God knows the accurate tally. Thanks very much for joining us, Susanna. Thanks very much, Jason. In the earliest days of America's manned space program, ace pilot Mary Wallace Wally Funk was acing all her tests in the privately funded Women in Space initiative. But in 1961, that scheme was cancelled, Neither she nor any of the so-called Mercury 13 women went to space. Last month, though, Wally Funk did go to space, just aboard a suborbital flight by Blue Origin. Oh, Oh, I love it. I love it. The the four of us, we had a great time. It was was wonderful. I want to go again fast. Of the nearly 600 people to have broken free of their earthly bonds, only 67 have been women, 
and there's more to it than just historical inequalities. NASA's female astronauts aren't able to fly as much as their male colleagues, and there are loads of reasons for this. Joe Linus writes for The Economist. Many of them are the same as the barriers that hold women back in terrestrial professions. But space comes with some particular hurdles. One of them is the impact that space travel has on the human body. And what do you mean by that? What are those impacts? Well, when they're in space, astronauts are exposed to a complex radiation environment. And there are two main sources. Huge explosions called solar flares take place on the surface of the sun, and they release massive amounts of radiation. And then there are also galactic cosmic rays. These are high-energy ions that have been stripped of their electrons as they travel across solar systems at close to the speed of light. These are a big problem as they're highly penetrating and can't easily be stopped by shielding. This radiation can have a very nasty effect on the body, raising the risk of cancer and cardiovascular disease, and can cause damage to the central nervous system, which can lead to things like cognitive impairment and memory problems. On Earth, we're protected by a magnetic field which stretches around our planet, and this does a pretty good job at protecting us from the radiation in space. That makes sense, but why then should the rules be any different for women and for men? Well, it's hard to study the effects of space radiation on the body. So when deciding on how to create radiation limits for their astronauts, NASA have largely relied on a study that follows survivors of the atomic bombs dropped on Japan in the Second World War. This has led them to believe that women are at a higher risk of developing radiation-induced cancer than men, partly because they tend to live longer, and also because they can be more susceptible to certain cancers, such as breast and thyroid. Based on this, NASA have imposed a career limit for radiation exposure, which aims to keep the chance of developing radiation-induced fatal cancer to 3% above that of non-astronauts. And so how much exposure does that amount to in practice? Well, it's worked out on an individual basis, but it would mean that a 30-year-old female would be limited to exposure equivalent to around 180 millisieverts, and that's compared to a 55-year-old man who could have roughly double that. Background radiation varies, but for context, an average American is exposed to around 3 or 4 millisieverts a year, and a 180-day trip to the International Space Station could have anywhere between 50 and 120 millisieverts. This ceiling means a female can only fly around half of the number of missions that a man can. But some scientists say that there is actually no evidence for significant gender difference in radiation exposure and the associated risk of cancer. And these numbers, these limits, are, are what America's space agency work to. Is, is that how it works for other countries? Well, other space agencies, such as the European and Russian bodies, they don't have these differences. They have a single limit that's set for all of their astronauts, regardless of age or gender. And in a push for more diversity, in its latest recruitment drive, the European Space Agency has emphasised women and applicants with disabilities applying to become astronauts. So NASA have proposed a new flat radiation limit for all of their astronauts, which would be of around 600 millisieverts. This would bring it in line with most of the other major space agencies and would make gender less of a factor when deciding who gets to go on missions. So do you think, all told, with these amendments to the rules and, and more explicit pushes for diversity, that we'll start to see more of it in space missions? Well, hopefully, yes, we will. NASA have already released plans to put the first woman on the moon as part of their Artemis program. But the new rules will cause a few problems when NASA and other space agencies start looking further afield. The US National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine believe that a trip to Mars would exceed the new limit by 150%. They have proposed an individual risk assessment and a waiver system for trips that would exceed this limit. But being an astronaut is a pretty unique profession, and radiation is by no means the only risk that they will face when going into space. 
but it is important that everything is done to protect them and to make sure the best astronauts for each mission are able to fly, regardless of their gender. Thanks very much for joining us, Joe. Thanks, Jason. all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.